0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 296. There's a title wave coming. What you gonna do?
1: Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy.
0: Hey everybody, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. Today we're going to be speaking with Jacob Winograd, who many of you probably know under the handle of Biblical Anarchy on Twitter. I refuse to call it X, by the way. It's not going to happen. Unless Elon says that the payments he makes to me are contingent upon that. In which case, X marks the spot. Anyway... Jacob, let me just read a little bit from his official bio. Jacob Winograd created the Biblical Anarchy Podcast as a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. In it, he attempts to make the case for a free society and decentralized governance based on biblical principles of limited authority. He also asks what it truly means to render unto God what is God's and what the implications for Christians are in light of Christ being king and Christians being called to serve only his kingdom. In addition, Jacob is also involved in various positions with the Mises Caucus, Christian Caucus, and Libertarian Party in his state. And so, as you may not be surprised to hear, Jacob and I talk about his bread and butter issues, namely, render unto Caesar. You know, what what does Jesus mean by that? Is he saying, oh, you just got to pay your taxes? Well, maybe, maybe not. And of course, the famous Romans 13 passage, but Jacob does give a different take than most of the people who have discussed it on this show. So I will say that. So without further ado, here's my discussion with Jacob. Jacob, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show.
1: Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Longtime listener and fan.
0: Oh, I, I appreciate that. and I've certainly seen you. You are active on Twitter, right?
1: Yeah, I've been fairly active on Twitter for a few years now. What's your handle there? At Biblical Anarchy.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought, but I didn't want to say that, and then it looks silly. Okay, <laughs> so I thought that was you. Why don't we start, I, I will have given some of the your bio in the intro, but just for people to hear it in your words, can you explain how is it that you're immersed in both biblical Christianity, but also, I don't know if you call yourself a libertarian or an ANCAP or what, just can you give us a little background just so yeah. people know where you're coming from?
1: Sure. So I guess like the quick summary would be a group of pastors kid did a rebellion against the more conservative Republican Upbringing I had. I was still a Christian, but I was like a progressive Christian on the left. I was a registered Democrat. Like I got big into Bernie Sanders when he became popular back in 2015, 2016. And then After 2016, when Trump was elected, the way the left reacted to that sort of broke my worldview. About two years later, I, after going through a political sojourn, discovered libertarianism and discovered the Austrian schools. I discovered the Mises Institute through Dave Smith. And so I found Tom Woods, I found you, found others like that, and then quickly became a more Austrian libertarian and then a ANCAP shortly after that. When... COVID hit in 2020 and I saw so many churches locking down. I just felt that was wrong. Maybe at the beginning when it was like, like, we don't know what we're dealing with. I understood it. But when there were churches still locked down in August, I was upset by that. And then also upset by different churches who decided not to lock down, being shut down by their governments. And I felt like there's a strong correlation between libertarianism and Christianity. And I wanted to try to You know, make that case the best I could. So that's when I started getting into the podcasting sphere, which was also a learning experience. And I started to develop my views more. And that's how I came to where I am today. About a year ago, I joined the Libertarian Christian Institute. And my podcast is now under their banner, under the Christians for Liberty Network. And yeah, I like to just talk about what the Bible what I say in my intro is the podcast is about exploring what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. And a lot of people, when we talk about politics and the Bible, they'll bring up render unto Caesar. And I go, yeah, but what comes after that? And I know we're going to talk about this later, but mm-hmm. we, it's render unto God. What does that mean? That That's what I like to dive into is let's read what the Bible has to say about these subjects as a whole and not necessarily just run with the conventional interpretations that I think have gone astray.
0: Okay, great. So folks, I ran this by Jacob ahead of time. And so I'm going to be pushing back on some of the things he says in this episode, not because I disagree with him per se, but just, I think that helps him get across his worldview better to have it go through a wind tunnel as it were. So Jacob, I know there are, so for one thing, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he covers a lot of territory in that book, but I think where, what the point of the mirror is to say, I am not, I don't like this trend, as of when he wrote that, of talking about, like, someone is a pacifist Christian, or I'm a, I forget the various things that were popular at the time, but people who were using Christianity as a springboard to whatever their political activism was, and and it was often people on the left, or at least from our point of view, we would say, oh yeah, leftists, and and you get that, so you could see that, and so it's more they cared about the Bible in the or the Gospels in particular because, oh, I really feel more people should contribute to feeding the homeless. And oh, if it's a Christian nation, then I'll appeal to that as opposed to having Jesus be the Lord of your life kind of thing. And I've heard similar concerns from people who agree with you and me on many issues politically to say, no, you guys are like putting Rothbard first and Jesus second because, hey, look at I can point to a lot of gospel passages that back up my, whatever, anarcho-capitalism or whatever it is, as opposed to the other way around. So what do you say to people who are concerned about, or just in general, theology is so much more important than these base concerns of politics mm. and economics that, you know, yeah. so you get the idea. So what, yeah. how do you feel about that kind of thing?
1: No, that's a good, it's a good question, and that does come up a lot. So I think... The way I answer that is is by saying that in the same way that we as who understand market and Austrian theory, we sometimes label in the Misesian sense that everything is economics. I think almost that also applies to to politics in a sense that everything is political and the Bible deals with things like, again, human relationships, rules, morality and authority and To, to say that applies to all areas of human life, but that politics is a weird special sphere where our faith and the teachings of the Bible have no involvement, I would say is a mistake. Now, I would be clear here. I, I think that there is wisdom in trying to be gracious with fellow believers on the issue of politics and what, I, what I'm careful to do in, in my podcast and when I'm like on social media or whatever, I, I don't want to tell someone you're not a real Christian if you're not X, right? right I, I think right, that's, yeah. not only do I think that's not true, because I think ultimately you can be saved and just be wrong about politics, but it's also just insulting and not helpful towards convincing someone to listen to your ideas anyway. I would not say that there is a correct political philosophy taught in the Bible that is libertarianism. If you're not a libertarian, then you're a bad Christian. But I think that as we mature in the faith, and if we decide that we're going to have, again, have our faith, have what the Bible teaches impact our worldview on all things, then I think that we can make better or worse conclusions about what a Christian view of of government and politics is. And I try to be careful with how I phrase it. It's not that I'm going into the Bible and trying to cherry pick a bunch of different verses to affirm my anarcho-capitalism or libertarianism. I think what rather the way I try to describe it is I think we if we just read the Bible and we we read what it teaches about government and, and human relationships, authority, and things like that, we're gonna come away with conclusions that line up with the same conclusions that libertarians and the Austrians and anarcho-capitalists have discovered through just advancing moral philosophy and and, and natural law, which to me makes sense, right? If, if people are focusing on the natural law side of things, that general revelation should line up with what the Bible teaches, which is special revelation. They, they wouldn't be in conflict with one another. So th- that's the way I would try to describe it. In terms of, I think some people also to what you were asking would say, is it helpful or necessary as a Christian to do? Th-? And I think that an, a again, I, I don't want to mix this with salvation, but a necessary component of the gospel message And of Christ's ministry and his identity is that he is Lord. He is the one true king and his kingdom is the one true kingdom. And so I think that there are things in Jesus's life and ministry and teachings and in the rest of the biblical corpus that do call us as Christians to take specific stances and understandings of these human kingdoms and of earthly rulers. And again, I think that those things line up with libertarian anarchism.
0: Okay, good. Yeah, a lot of stuff there. Let me, it's weird. I can never put my finger on exactly because on the one hand, I definitely can appreciate how if I am at church on a Sunday and it's close to election day, I don't want the pastor to get up. I certainly don't want him telling us who to vote for. Mm -hmm. And I don't even think I want him telling us who he's voting for. And yet, on the other hand, like you say, if it's the kind of thing where clearly we all agree it's not just that oh yeah church holy stuff is on sunday and then you go back to worldly living the other 6 days of the week because that's practical and oh you, you can't get, have people take advantage of you and you can't be a sucker and you know what I mean it's like, clearly that's not correct either and so it's i'm having trouble reconciling the two you see the apparent tension Do, mm-hmm. can you help me get through that what is the is there some principle that actually handles both of those situations that's
1: yeah i think ultimately I like the way I mean I'll use my pastor as an example. Mm-hmm. I like the way he's always handled elections and the, I think the last time we had an election cycle the Sunday before that happened he said, "Listen, whatever you do at the polls, if you're casting a vote and you're putting your faith in a politician, if you're putting your faith in government to solve problems, then you're missing the point of what we're doing here every Sunday. No human institution, no political figure, no no political party is going to be your savior. We have one savior." and we have one gospel. And that's, I think, what the ultimate message should be. Now, going beyond that, let's say people are just voting on, not like they're putting their faith in it, but they just have their preferences and they think they're fulfilling some sort of civic duty or whatnot. And should a pastor or people at church have anything to say about that? Again, I think should you get up there and say you need to go vote for the Republican or the Democrat or the Libertarian candidate or something? I don't know if you should make endorsements of of people, but I think you can definitely just speak to the issues and try to speak truth to them. And uh, whether that's on international affairs and my pastor, I know, is him and I were talking about this current conflict between Israel and and Gaza and the Palestinians. And I know he's he told me this much. He's like, I know I'm going to get up there and upset any of the dispensationalists in our congregation. So we need to speak the truth first and foremost on mm-hmm. any of these issues, whether it comes to who, who is the true Israel, whatever, what are our opinions on... I, I think the government, sort of the Bible does teach us things about taxes, teaches us things about property rights and stuff. I think the Bible makes it very clear in things like do not steal, do not covet. There's the the parable of the workers in the vineyard. That's, I think, Matthew 20 or 22, if I'm remembering correctly, where it says that the the property owner can do with his property that which he wishes. I think the Bible makes a clear stance on property rights. So you can from the poppet say, listen, uh, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but I am going to say that if you're voting for someone or something that involves the mass extortion of people's property, that's in conflict with biblical teaching. Mm-hmm. That's what I would say. Focus on the issues more so than the, than the parties. But you can definitely, I think, speak to the whole political system and the political apparatus by saying the, the first thing I said, which is don't put your faith and your hope in any of these figures.
0: And also, too, I, I can come up with exaggerated examples. Obviously, if they were considering a government measure that would outlaw Christianity or sure. that would make yeah. everyone have to worship a golden calf— I would expect every pastor to get up and tell his congregation that, no, that's not correct, right. and you need to oppose that, and we're not doing that.
1: Something like the American flag, a lot of churches will, like, on the 4th of July, they'll have their American flags out, they'll sing the national anthem. Like my, And again, like my church isn't run by anarcho-capitalists, but I think mm-hmm. they do make just clear biblical stances about, so we're not going to have American flags up here. We're not going to do Pledge of Allegiance or the National Anthem or do any of these things because it's mm. not what you do is your business, but what we're going to teach and what we're going to practice as a corporate body, we don't think those things are appropriate. And you can do, you don't have to be inflammatory when right, you talk right. about these things. We should humbly just proclaim the truth as we see it revealed in, in the scripture, and but also have Grace for people who disagree with us. I think that too often, I think this social media age we live in, it's, we just, you either don't say anything for risk of offending someone or you go the opposite way. And no, I think people who are in positions of authority at church have a, they have a responsibility to speak the truth and to shepherd people. And sometimes that means saying uncomfortable things that might upset people, but you should try to do so in a way that's loving and compassionate and trying to reach them not trying to berate them or scold them necessarily. Okay,
0: yeah, great. Like I said, I think I agree with everything you said there because I do want again understand both of those impulses of Oh yeah, I don't want you're debasing the the church should be about godly things and not it, whereas no, if the government's going to be going doing immoral things in your name, where else would your morals? Be?
1: Yeah, I think that speaks to one of my foundational arguments for why I think anarcho capitalism is a the equivalent of what we would get from biblical morality. It's, I don't think when we're going to get into Romans 13, render unto Caesar and all that. And even in those passages, I don't see where it says, and therefore people in government are exempt from the 10 commandments or exempt right. from, it's like, it's like the biblical morality is universal. It applies to everybody. And so if it applies to everybody, it has to apply to people in government. And so the church, I think, has a, Now, I'm going to be careful. I don't think the church should be the government. I don't think the church Mm -hmm. should run the government, but the church definitely needs to have a role in the culture and also in speaking about what the government is doing, because that's a major Mm -hmm. part of society.
0: Okay. Yeah. Why don't we jump into the famous render under Caesar." So I'll just read this to refresh everybody's memory or some of you, maybe the first time. So this is, I'm reading the new King James version. This is Matthew 22 coming in at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. One popular reaction to that is some like standard Christian, at least Americans, will say, so this is given the clear delineation and things of morals and what you do in your personal life, how to be a better spouse or father or mother, that's what Jesus is saying, that's God's, stuff. but paying taxes and going and doing your civic duty. And if you got drafted, yeah, you'd have to go to war. And that's, they're making a distinction between the areas in your life where the state has authority and the areas in your life where God has authority. That's all that's saying. It's pretty open and shut. And I'm guessing you wouldn't agree with the way I, what I just said. So
1: take it away. There's a lot of different ways that we can look at this passage. I'll plug a really good article on the Mises Institute website. It's by Jeff Barr. It's called Render Unto Caesar a Most Understood New Testament Passage. I highly recommend anyone read that because I think he does a really good job at explaining the historical context here. What's really relevant for the way I like to tackle it is mainly the point that it says it right in the biblical text the Pharisees were seeking to entrap Jesus. So, we have to ask yourself, what's the trap here? What are they hoping Jesus is going to say that's going to result in the outcome that, that, that would be beneficial for them? And they're trying to discredit Jesus or get him in trouble. There's a divide among the Jewish people and leaders at this time on the legitimacy of paying the tribute to the Romans. A lot of the Jewish people didn't think that it was legitimate, viewed the Roman emperor as basically like an idol claiming to be like divine, which is obviously an affront Jewish and also Christian ideas of idolatry and there being only one God. And if Jesus were to respond to them and say, yes, you should pay your taxes, he's going to discredit himself to a lot of his followers and a lot of the Jewish people who encounter him and they can use that against him. But if he says, no, you, you shouldn't because the Romans aren't the legitimate ruler or they claiming to be God and divine and that's wrong, then they can get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. And that's the trap. Mm-hmm. And Jesus's answer can't be either of those because the passage ends with the Pharisees walked away astounded by his answer. So clearly his answer is like a... Complete flipping of the chessboard in terms of the trap that they thought that he had set for him. So I think what he basically said was I would describe it this way he is just describing the norms of what we owe people and what we owe God and saying this is the truth. And so when he says, render unto Caesar, okay, render unto Caesar's, that begs the question what is Caesar's? What belongs to Caesar? And that begs the follow-up question of, well, how do we define what is normative in terms of what people are owed and what are legitimate claims to property? And I think you would struggle to anywhere in the Bible, find a passage that says that would support the idea that What is normative in terms of claims, legitimate claims to property is holding someone at gunpoint or theoretical gunpoint, extorting them and saying, you owe me 20% of your harvest or 20% of your income. And if you don't give it to me, you'll be thrown in a cage and violence will be used against you. That is not what the Bible would say is normative in terms of claims of property. No, it would uphold, like I mentioned earlier, property rights. Again, do not steal. We could just focus on that passage. I think there are many more that speak to property rights, but do not steal. I mean, you could just use argumentation ethics right there and say, do not steal basically implies that people can have legitimate claims to property. And if there are property rights and legitimate claims to property— You take someone else's property, that's wrong. You can't have stealing without property rights, and property rights are based on either you created the property yourself through natural appropriation or creation of something new or voluntary trade. Then the second part is equally important because he says, follows up, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's with render unto God what is God's okay, what belongs to God? What is Jesus trying to get at here? And I think what Jesus is getting at here is what God has owed is everything, right? And beyond just everything, God has owed your allegiance and your worship. And this puts a follower of God in conflict with the Romans and their claims to authority and their claims to divinity. Like, how can you do business with the Romans? How can you pay tribute to them? How can you view them as legitimate rulers while also claiming to worship the one true God. This goes to later when Jesus says that you can only serve two masters, right? If we're giving to God everything that he is owed, I would argue that there's really nothing left to give to Caesar other than, you know, I guess the exception here would be like, if you partake in a government service, I guess you owe payment for that service. If you use a toll road, pay the toll. If you use a court, pay the court fee. I'm not saying this is a passage that says you should be freeloaders. And I I think that there is, we'll get more into this when we get to Romans 13. I think that there is a biblical norm of civil governance. And if people perform a service and you voluntarily agree and contract with them to use their services, then you owe them something. But that's free markets at play. And that's not what the Roman tribute, that's not what taxation ultimately is. And we understand that as, as libertarians. And I don't think this passage can be used to say, Jesus said, pay your taxes, because if Jesus's answer can just be taken as, here Jesus says, pay your taxes, but also make sure you worship God, the Pharisees would have been happy with that answer. They would have been like, ha, mm-hmm. we got him. <laughs> now a bunch of the Jewish followers and stuff are going to be upset with him because right. they, that's not the answer that they wanted to hear Jesus say.
0: What's interesting is just on its own terms, it's a tautology. Like what he said, no one could possibly say that's wrong. Right. To say, render under Caesar what is Caesar's and under God what is God. Like nobody could object to that. And also it's a, when I had someone else on, we were going through this, I just reiterated my view that it was a masterful thing because the whole part about him saying, show me the coin whose image is that, there's a sense in which that's not really relevant to the answer he gave. But yet, by him going through that, it led them down a path. And so then when he drops the punchline on them, you can see why they, they marveled at his words or were astonished at his teaching. And say, because it's whoa, what you, you could see how they were just legitimately, you're like, you're right, that they thought we have him no matter what he says or if he doesn't answer. You know what I mean? Like you could see him hemming and Han knowing the trap and right. saying a bunch of nonsense. And he didn't. He went and said, Show me the coin. It sounds like he's going to give a real definitive answer. And then he says something that it's not meaningless, but yet it's hard to pin him down. Wait a minute, what do you mean by that? So such that thousands of years later, we're still talking about, what did he mean by that? My joke is to say, yeah, it's the kind of thing that this, that God, if he became a man, that's what he would say in that situation. No, no human would have come up. Shakespeare wouldn't have come up with something that pretty. No. So there, there is that element. And I, I guess I have seen people, I'm wondering your take, Jacob, about to say, oh no, it wasn't merely a diversion with the saying, show me the coin, is that he, maybe what he was getting at was telling the Jewish people, okay, if you are grumbling under the oppression and you don't want to be paying the tax, why are you using their
1: money? That That's something I think Jeff Barr mm-hmm. brings up in his article, which, and there's a whole mm-hmm. historical analysis of the descriptions that are on the coins and who would have the coins. You'd only have the coins if you were doing business with the Romans. But yeah, there's an element yeah. there, too, where Jesus very plausibly was exposing them as hypocrites, trying to entrap him for something that they're potentially guilty of themselves. That's definitely an element to it. And like I said, I think that article does a very good job at adding a lot of historical detail and stuff that, that goes into helping to explain this passage as well. Because a lot of the Roman coins, when you look at them, they depict Caesar in this very godlike way. And Caesar was mm-hmm. often referred to as a son of God and mm-hmm. was was viewed as divine. But yeah, it wasn't just that the Romans were unjust rulers and stuff. The, the Jewish people viewed the the claim as idolatry and paying taxes to him was a act of participating in that, in that idolatry. So that, that's very much, and again, and it's like when we ask, render unto God, what is God? And that's commandment one and two, worship, you will worship me alone, the one true God, and you will not bow down to any idol. God doesn't want 80% of our worship. He doesn't want 90% of it. He doesn't want ninety nine percent of it. He wants a hundred percent of our worship and our allegiance and loyalty.
0: Okay, and that's a good springboard then to the next one. That of course is whenever we have libertarian Christians on or Christian libertarian Christians, <laughs> we get into Romans thirteen. So let me go ahead and
1: uh, it's the mud of the uh, the Christian yeah, libertarian. Exactly. Uh, All right, this is
0: Romans thirteen. We'll start from verse one, and again, this is New King James But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And just a couple more verses here. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Folks, let's take a break from the action to remind you that this is a very unique podcast, is it not? We talk about number theory, the nature of infinite sets. We talk about the Proud Boys conviction about the January 6th riot at the Capitol building. We talk about intense theological issues, and later we're going to be getting into Molinism versus Calvinism versus Arminianism, and of course, there's some economics and libertarian theory thrown in just for fun. So if you want to see more of these episodes or just help support the cause, please go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Every little bit helps. Thanks for your support. So I don't understand how you can be an anarcho-capitalist and claim to be a Bible-believing Christian because that seems pretty open and shut. But yeah, I'm guessing you disagree with that. So what do you think?
1: So yeah, the common interpretation people take away from this is that what Paul is describing here is that God, because of his providential decree, sovereignty over all things, that all authority structures and figures, governments, states, empires, whatnot, they only come into power because God allows it. So God's instituting these human authorities. And so therefore, if we disobey them, we're disobeying God. Right there, we have a problem because there's a lot of examples in the Bible of people disobeying governing authorities. So then the way people try to explain this is go, well, if there's a conflict where obeying the governing authorities causes you to disobey God, then you have to disobey the governing authorities. And I was like, Can right, I
0: jump in real fast? Sure. A- so that's specifically the way R.C. Sproul right. handles it. And I went back and reviewed the last time I had someone on to talk about Romans 13. I just listened to him. and Yeah, exactly what you just said. He said, it's cl- it's very clear the Christian in general it's, sport, it's supposed to be like Christians should not be objectionable to anybody like at, at work everybody should be like oh yeah those guys right there that are Christians like they're the best janitors we've ever had here. they come in here they're always in a good mood they don't mind doing dirty work or whatever they're just boom great attitude and and if you're a civil servant they come in and they fill out that paperwork and they do and they're at the DMV and they're and if you're a soldier and you're a Christian yep they go and they don't do war crimes. If they're legitimately defending the country and the orders are lawful, they carry them out with duty and sacrifice. And and the Christian, and of course we pay taxes, but now if the government were to order us to worship Baal, then no, as a Christian, you can't do that. Right. Because that's in conflict with God's direct rule. So that's R.C. Sproul's take that, y- yes, you just, you do everything in the utmost to be like a, the salt and light and so forth, and that, but yeah, obviously, if there's a direct conflict, then you can't.
1: And to be clear, there's part of that interpretation that I would affirm. I think this is one of my favorite passages is Daniel 3, Meshach, Radshach, and Abednego, they did not obey uh, King Mm -hmm. Nebuchadnezzar. They did submit to the punishment, and they said, God will either deliver us or he won't. And although I am an ANCAP, and we'll go on to explaining why I think Romans 13 doesn't actually defend the state, I'm not advocating for being violent revolutionaries. I do think there is An aspect to being a Christian that does mean that we should be above reproach and that even in the face of persecution, oppression, and living under an unjust authority structure, we see in many passages, heck, the passage preceding this one, Romans 12, and I think 1st Peter chapter 2, we're told to do good to those who persecute us. And so that, that is an element Where people like R.C. Sproul, I think, are correct. But I think to go deeper into what I think people are missing here about Romans 13 is that if we read this as the justification is God's providence over governing authorities, why does that only apply to governing authorities? are we to never resist anything that God is sovereign over? Because if you have and I'm more reformed, so maybe some Christians who are more open theists wouldn't have this problem, but if you believe God's sovereign over everything, then everything that happens is because of God. Can you just, are you not supposed to resist anything that happens to you? Just be a doormat, roll over, and let it happen? I don't think that's true. And then secondly, the way that the governing authorities are described here, I think just raises a question of, okay, is this really talking about just universally every human king Kingdom or state, because the the key verse here, I would say, is in verse three For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. He is a minister of God, in verse four, for your good. Okay. Does that really describe the Roman Empire? Does that really describe really any human state, our current state we live in, and and, and many others who are even worse than the current state we live in? I, I think the problem here is that people are reading this and we have this common conflation between the state and governance. And I think those who are well-versed in libertarian theory know that having civil governance and the state be synonyms is not true, not helpful. As libertarians, even as ANCAPs, we're not against the idea of the administration of property rights. We believe in there's a role in society for civil governance, which I would define as the pursuit of civil justice. And that is what is being described here. But the state, and we understand this as ANCAPs, the state is, just by definition, by its very nature, not able to meet this description here. And I would actually argue that this description here is not just, it's not that Paul is just describing the state. Paul is, in his description, prescribing to us, defining to us, the norms of what godly or righteous civil governance looks like. So, that prescription mm-hmm of what governments are supposed to do is just there. They're not a tear to good works, but to evil. And this would make sense in the context of Romans. Paul is really good at answering objections that people have. He's really good at anticipating what people are going to say and then answering it. When Romans 12, it ends by him saying, do not seek personal vengeance. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good And I think people would read what Paul was saying at that point and go, all right, what do we do when people are like murdering or stealing or whatnot? And I think what Paul is getting at here then in Romans 13 is saying, okay, I don't want you, if someone does wrong to you or your neighbor, to go out and take justice into your hands necessarily. Now that doesn't apply for self-defense. This is more like if, let's say you broke into my house and stole my TV. Okay, would it be wise or... Commendable Christian behavior for me to respond to that by breaking into your house and stealing your TV or mm-hmm. burning your house down or breaking your window. You know what I mean? That's not me pursuing justice. That's me seeking vengeance. So we're to reject that. But then Paul is affirming okay, there's a role for civil governance. We need to be subject to those who are administering civil justice, who are fulfilling this role of civil governance. And listen, if you're doing nothing wrong, You don't have anything to fear from just civil authorities, but if you do evil, beware. So I think to to sum it up this way, I think Romans 13 is not a description of de facto of every state. It is rather a prescription of civil governance of godly, of biblical civil governance. And the state can't measure up to that. The state by its very nature violates the principle of non-aggression. The state, is supposed to protect, violate, uh, sorry, the state is supposed to protect property rights, but by its very nature, it violates property rights. The state violates consent. The state initiates coercion and violence against people on a regular basis. And even if we were going to ignore that, just the nature of the state, the evidence of most states that we see in history and today is that they don't actually live up to this description in Romans 13. They aren't a terror to evil and not a terror to those who do good. A lot of times it's, that's flipped upside down. And the people who do good are the ones being persecuted. And the people who do evil, not only are they often sometimes exempt from it, I would argue that very often the nation state is run by just evil people, by, by some of the worst people in society. Even someone like C.S. Lewis, has said things like that that the people who pursue power are are the ones who are the least fit to to do. It's a it's a common observation that many Christians have made. Yeah, that that's what I would I would say that Romans thirteen cannot really be reconciled with the state. Uh, I've heard other interpretations that try to do, and I just I think they fall short. I think this is a pres- a prescription for the need for civil governance because. We don't want you taking personal vengeance. We don't want to live in a society where everyone's just trying to take justice into their own hands. But we do need people who are going to protect property rights, but they are not to be a terror to those who do evil, not to be a terror to those who do good, and only to those who do evil.
0: Yeah, good stuff there. One thing I can say for sure is the way a lot of right-wing American Christians try to use that to me, makes no sense. So I when I was at Hillsdale College as a professor, and I was invited, I think it was Brad Berzer's class. He was he was a professor, and he knew uh, they were covering anarchy and whatever class it was. And so he had me come and give a little a lecture, guest lecture on that stuff. And I outlawed the, the different varieties, including Rothbardianism. And I covered left-wing stuff as well. And then somehow it came up, and I addressed this, because there were a lot of small government Republicans in the audience, kids that were very serious Christians, and they thought Romans 13 was an open and shut case. Like, how could you possibly endorse anarchy of any kind? And so I said to them, you're okay with George Bush invading Iraq, but a plain reading of Romans 13 says the only reason Saddam's in power is because God put him there. And What do you right. mean Saddam is an evil dictator? The only Iraqis who had to fear Saddam's chemical weapons were criminals. Right. If you didn't do anything wrong, so I'm not going to hurt you. But you can according go. to right. the face value reading of that. So you, you, clearly,
1: right, yeah. you'd have to say that the Jews in the Holocaust somehow deserved what was happening to them because he's Hitler's been ordained by God. He's a minister of God for their good. He's it's like that that just we have to be careful. And again, I'm coming from a reformed perspective and reformed mm. theology generally is very high on God's sovereignty, but we have to be careful to not confuse God's providential decree with his moral decree. And yes, so God is providentially sovereign over everything that happens. And we believe that he is at work in everything that happens, even evil things that happen, and he is working them Mm -hmm. for good. That's what Joseph says in the book of Genesis. And we see this all throughout the Bible, that terrible things happen and God orchestrates those terrible events of what men meant for evil. He uses for good. That doesn't make the evil not evil. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and, and- <laughs> right and even too just to be clear if somebody did want to come up and say and I could imagine like a certain type of Christian pacifist arguing that no in some grand sense no God is allowing and I know I remember I read Eli Wiesel his account I think I'm saying this right that he was walking with the elder and him and some of the younger guys when they were getting rounded up were going to try to rush the guards or something and that the elder Jewish people told them no if God wants us to be rescued he will and he was was mad about that late, later, like we had a chance to escape early on. And so there is a, a school of thought saying per se, I'm not even saying that's wrong. What I'm saying though, is the the kids at Hillsdale yeah, who thought they could use the plain text reading of Romans 13 to blow me up, say Rothbard can't be right. Cause look at this while, yeah, we're going to go have regime change in Iraq because Saddam's an evil dictator. And I was saying, no, that doesn't work with yeah. that, that particular <laughs> combination of views. Exactly. Um, the other thing too, I don't know if this, if you find this compelling, Jacob, but not even somebody who's more middle of the road, not weirdo Rothbardianism, but a, a standard American Christian who likes the founding fathers, really likes the U.S. Constitution and got, by gosh, if this country just got back to first principles and to, this, is, this God has blessed this land. and Okay. When Paul was writing these epistles, he was not thinking of a bicameral legislature and a federal system of blah, blah, blah. And, oh, and where women could vote. He would have been right. floored. And so Are you guys insane, you let yeah. women vote. <laughs> so I'm saying he like, clearly Paul's political views were not anywhere near. So whatever he was thinking about it, it, So do you understand what I'm trying to get at? That I could argue and I have argued that, yeah, Paul is trying to describe a just social order with the rule of law. And I'm not against the rule of law. I'm right. not against law enforcement. Right. It's just the system I think that, achieves that outcome with the least amount of injustice and blah, blah, blah is what would be called Rothbardian anarcho-capitalism. Right. Just like people who are familiar with Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine and then Madison would think, oh, we understand how better to achieve a civil society than Paul did back then sitting in prison writing writing epistle. And that there's no contradiction there. Like yeah. Paul was divinely inspired and the stuff he said is true, but he didn't know the proper way to implement a government on Earth just because we've learned oh, yeah. a lot since then.
1: Absolutely, I'd agree with that, 100%. I don't think Paul was envisioning anarcho-capitalism when he wrote Romans 13, mm-hmm. which sometimes people will try to accuse me of saying that. No, I think he's just saying that civil governance is about enforcing biblical morality. And I think the best way to enforce biblical morality in the civil sphere is libertarian anarchism, Rothbardian anarchism. I think that, and that everything else, not only does it not work as well, but it's going to fly in conflict with that description there in Romans 13. So it and and then the latter part of Romans 13 I think is actually echoing the render unto Caesar passage because Paul then goes on in verse 6 to say you pay taxes to God's ministers render therefore to all their due Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So right there, that's echoing Jesus' language of render unto Caesar what Caesar's. So that, mm-hmm. listen, if you go on a toll road, pay the toll. Like, don't be, don't be a freeloader. Don't be this like rabble rouser who's trying to stir up trouble. So if you use a service or a product, pay that. And, that, and he's like, it's not just taxes. That's just even honor and respect and customs. We need to, you know, give people to what they're owed. But then people who bring up Romans 13 don't often like to read past verse seven. We go on to verse eight, right after he says, give to people that which they're owed. He goes, owe no one anything except to love one another. <laughs> so mm-hmm. there, that's a, that's an important element of it too. And you could read that as saying, yes, pay people what they're owed, but you should probably try to live your life where you don't really owe people anything. <laughs>
0: To circle back to something you said, I forget the exact wording you used, but the idea of when, when I was saying what R.C. Sproul's interpretation was, and I was going through all this stuff, you should be the best janitor they've ever seen and you should be and all this stuff and the best civil servant and the best corporal in the Marines, that whatever your role is, there's a way to do that and which somebody could be, in our view, like a, a statist or something and still believe that stuff. And you were saying how you had some sympathy for that and that, yeah, there are certain things where... Even if you don't necessarily endorse the overall system, as long as you're not directly violating a godly command, then it's okay to go. And I think that the epitome of that is in Matthew 17, reading from verse 24 here about paying a temple tax. So just for people who don't know this one, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? And Simon and Peter are the same guy, folks. From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you've opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. And so I think that's an example where Jesus is saying, I don't owe them this temple tax, but just so we don't make waves. And there's going to be a lot of controversy coming up from my ministry. We don't need to fight this particular battle. You ran your mouth off, Peter, and didn't say the right thing, or you should have checked with me or something. But okay, since you said that here, but even there, it wasn't like, let's go engage in commerce and raise a coin. It was like a miraculous go in the thing and pull it out of the fish's mouth. (laughs) So how how do you respond to that?
1: Yeah, I would agree with that sentiment that I think as it can be tough as Christians to try to strike that right balance. And I think that's Mm -hmm. where God's grace comes in. We're not always going to perfectly hit the mark in terms of how to respond to these things, but you can call out something as being unjust or misaligned, inefficient, not doing what its biblical role is. But if you're not being asked to participate in sin, even that I'm a little, I can hear people objecting to that saying, but your tax money is used to fund war and abortion. But I don't have any evidence that if I didn't pay my taxes, they would stop killing babies and stop doing war. Mm -hmm. As long as the federal reserve exists, that's, they're going to print the money to do that anyway. Yeah. You have to weigh these things out. And it's like, I, if I don't, if I don't pay my taxes, even though I would say the government isn't owed my taxes, I'm going to be a better servant of God and his kingdom if I pay those taxes so that I can be in the position to take care of my family, continue to earn revenue that I can give to my church, give to other ministries to that I think are doing God's work, and to do what I do, which is to advocate for the illegitimacy of the taxation system, which is easier to do from where I'm at in the basement of my house, where I pay taxes for, as opposed to being in jail. <laughs> for not paying the taxes. Right, right. So yeah, I think, you know, it's a little bit of wisdom. And and also it's about like, we're going to potentially discredit ourselves to people if we are, these are illegitimate rulers, so we're not going to listen to anything they say. Again, everything they might tell you to do might be illegitimate, but if you're able to turn the other cheek, so to speak, or walk that extra mile and do it, I think that actually creates the opportunities by which we can be used by God to accomplish great goods. And that's, I think that that goes more into the teaching of how we respond to persecution. Again, like in Romans 12 and first Peter chapter two, what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. I I think that there's a lot of wisdom in responding to evil with not just bearing it, but responding in that, that very loving way. It, It disarms people and it opens up the door to something I think is even more important. Like all this is important, but even more important than that is, is preaching the gospel, to people and being that ambassador for Christ and his kingdom. And yeah, I mean that that those things are a little bit intention, but I think that reconciliation can be made. You can say the government isn't owed my taxes. I'm going to pay them anyway. And heck if a police officer pulls you over or stops you somewhere and you think it's completely illegitimate and odds are you're properly right. And you don't support the police system. And instead of being disgruntled, respond to that officer with not just cooperation, but appreciation and love, and just show mm-hmm. them the love of Christ there. You don't know what kind of good that's going to do, and we can continue to advocate for better systems of justice, not necessarily take it out on that individual police officer that's pulling us over for going four miles over the speed limit or having a broken taillight or something.
0: Yeah, if I ever get in the gulag for my political views and stuff, I would like to be the guy that like I'm constantly working on the prison guard or something, like trying to right. convert him. to like, you can quit this job. You're like Frank, come on, you're a good man. I've seen the way you broke up that fight the other day in the shower, and da-da-da. yeah, you don't need to do this job. You can find better. We don't need to be doing this. You don't need to be working for these people and that kind of. And I'm not just doing it to mess with him. Like, right. I'm trying like to make the best of a situation and not be mad at him. I get it. You got to feed your kids. You just ended up in this job, and I you got your benefits, and you can't quit because oh man, I don't know how I'm going to take care of my family. So, yeah, I'll I would on, like to be that guy.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I would like to too, uh, and. I'll go even one further. I, I, the Bible says, pray for your leaders. I pray for Joe Biden every day. It doesn't mean I support what he does. It doesn't seem like it's working. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> but I, we should pray for our governing leaders. Just, not even just those in Washington. Pray for your mayors. Pray for your sheriffs. Pray for the people who are in, like the, the grunt workers in government, that in those positions of power, that, that A, maybe they'll reconsider what they're doing, or, or at the very least, that the power that they have, even if it's illegitimate that, they're going to use it for good. Listen, I don't support our current governing system, but I'm still praying that we're not going to send financial aid over to Israel that we're not going to escalate this conflict into a big global war. And and ultimately praying for these people to have an encounter with Christ so that they can re- repent and turn from their ways and that's that's what our prayer should be for our countries even. What God I think it was I think it was Samuel, I forget which prophet it was like the, if you repent and turn from your ways, God will be faithful and heal your nation and stuff. But that's what our mm-hmm. prayer should be. And none of that's in conflict with saying, I think this is all illegitimate and against what the Bible teaches about government right, and, right. and all that. We, we don't have to be the the libertarian meme, like the boogaloo guy ready to <laughs> right, right. go out there and cause a conflict.
0: Okay, if we can just spend, as we wrap up here, we've got about five minutes left, I think the time I said I would for? I was toying with whether to bring it up, and then you just brought it up yourself, so I think it's Right now, as we record this, obviously, the big thing that is very pertinent to a lot of Christians is the situation in the Middle East. I know one strain of American evangelical thought is to say, we stand with Israel, that's God's chosen people. Obviously, they're misguided. They haven't seen that the person they're waiting for already came and that sort of stuff, but it Hey, that's how they are in the Bible, and but they're a special people, and that's why they've been the target over the years of people's outbursts and stuff, and this is where the end of the world is going to take place. So anyway, it's America stands with Israel, and come on, yeah, maybe the uh, soldiers may have done things in Gaza, they should, but in the grand scheme, come on, look at this. One group is trying to have a civilized society. This other group worships death and destruction. Give me a break. This isn't even, this is a no-brainer. What do you say to something like that?
1: Yeah, that's trying to figure out how to answer that in five minutes or less. It can go longer. I was
0: priming the audience as the audience would know, but I guess they can see the timer.
1: So, yeah, I think that there's a couple of different levels there. I mean, on Mm -hmm. a theological level, I don't think that the current nation state of Israel has any connection to Old Testament Israel. And can I don't you elaborate
0: think, I, and I, think, I said that knowing again just for people like when I say these, someone might say yeah, a lot yeah. of times I know what the response is, but I want to let set you up. Sure. So, That's so, one thing if you can explain yeah. what are you talking about. Is there, the Jews are God's chosen people. The Bible says so.
1: No, I think the New Testament is very clear about there's been a a fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant. So I would ascribe not to dispensationalism, but to what I call Covenantal. Can you define what theology? those terms are? Yeah, dispensationalism, which is a a I forget what a Schofield, I think is the one who who was like the founder of that. I forget the exact year, but basically a belief that there are promises to Israel and about Israel in in the Bible that have yet to come to pass, and that Israel is part of some grand eschatological epic that's going to play out at some point in, in the future of the end of days. And I would ascribe more to a, a covenantal theology or a fulfillment theology, although people pejoratively call this replacement theology. But yeah, I, I think that the promises that were made to Abraham, the promises that were made to the nation of Israel are now that the inheritors of those promise are the basic, what I would describe as the elect, all who are born again in Christ. Christ's chosen people, so like the church, the body of Christ. We are the new spiritual e- Israel, and we are the inheritors of Abraham's promise. And this was always the plan, because I think this is clearly spelled out in multiple times in in the Old Testament covenant. It pointed to the future, that there would be a new covenant, when the law is no longer just written down by our hands, but is written onto our hearts. And there, there's so much messianic prophecy that, that plays into this as well. So... I think that is why I don't think there's any connection to not only I mean on a theological level, I think there's no connection. I don't think there's any promise to them. Now that's not to say it's not replacement theology like the Jews are cast out forever. Paul makes it clear that Jews can be grafted in. I think this is in, this is like Romans nine through eleven. I think I'm I'm pulling from here in my memory where, you know, Paul is answering the objections to God changing the, the God's changing his promises and mm-hmm. abandoning the Jewish people and it's but makes it clear and he uses his old testament passages to justify this in describing Jacob I loved and Esau I hated not it's always been the case that not all who were from Israel, who were descendants of that line, were of the true Israel, even in the old covenant. And God Mm -hmm. has always been sovereign over who the elect and who the chosen are. And so, this is not a replacement theology. It's God did fulfill the promises of the nation of Israel. He used the, the nation of Israel to set the stage to create the circumstances for the salvation of the world. And that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now, we're living under that new covenant, That's been expanded. And so, those who are inheritors, and and this is laid out in Romans, it's laid out in Galatians 3 and 4, I think as well, that the inheritors of Abraham's promise are not, you don't inherit that promise just because of who your daddy was, or who your lineage is, or what tribe you're from, or what your ethnicity is, you inherit that through faith by grace. That is what makes you part of Israel, or part of God's chosen, and So I don't think that the nation of Israel, the modern day nation of Israel, has any religious claim. And if you track the history of it, from when the second temple fell, which was what, like 67 or something like that, to now, it's not like there's a direct line of causation where like the Jewish people remained one singular Jewish people and and then reclaim their nation. That's, in fact, the, the founders of the nation state of Israel were in, in many cases not even religious Jews. <laughs> they were mm-hmm. just secular Jews who didn't just wanted to have a ethnic homeland. Listen, I don't care if people voluntarily want to have freedom of association and they have in group preference. That's fine if it's done peacefully, but there's no biblical decree that says ethnicity matters in this anymore. In fact, it, I forget which, I think it's in Galatians where Paul goes, the opposite direction and says, no, like there is no male, no female, no Jew, no Greek, no free, no slave. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Yeah. I think that all of that just dispels this idea that Israel has some special theological role to play in God's future plans and in the second coming and and all that. And just as we stated earlier, I think it's fine for there to be a nation state or a group of people who are under one governance and they want to call themselves Israel. Like That's fine, And they even have a right to self-defense, but they don't have a right to initiate violence against peaceful people. Now, Hamas, they're not peaceful people, but Mm -hmm. the 50% of the Palestinian population that are children under 18 and a bunch of other civilians who are not part of Hamas, they haven't committed any violence. And if you want to justify that by saying they voted for Hamas, oh boy, you just justified bin Laden's reasons for orchestrating 9-11 because we voted in Mm -hmm. Bill Clinton, who... Authorized the sanctions on Iraq that killed 500,000 Iraqi children and so many other atrocities that elected officials in America have contributed to. If you want to play that game, we can do that, but you're not gonna. <laughs> you're it, it, it's it's going to end up real bloody for you. So no, I I don't think they have any theological importance. And and then on a strictly political level, I'm fine with them going after the Hamas terrorists. What I'm not fine with is them using some special claim to that land to justify basically keeping a group of people hostage in this weird state where they're not their own sovereign nation, but they're also not part of the Israeli nation where they have the full rights of Israeli people. And they're not just free to come and go as they please. This is not a situation that I think you can justify the actions of Israel based on any biblical principle.
0: Yeah, there's a lot there. And obviously we could keep going for a long time on this in this topic, but you're right. It's a weird. Like I've seen people say things like, "Oh, I'm sorry that uh, it's inconveniencing you that we stopped giving you all your electricity and food," and, is,
1: <laughs> and then told like, you have 24 hours million. to evacuate. I love that. Hey, we're, we're gonna turn off your water, turn off your electricity. By the way, a lot of these people's smartphones are probably dead now. And then it's oh, and now you have 24 hours to leave before we invade northern Gaza. It's like, how are you gonna evacuate but, two million people from that small area that you just? Already dropped bombs on and stuff, and their power right. is out. It's that, uh, yeah, it's just crazy.
0: <laughs> but also, like, the I don't think it was a free market outcome that some officials in Israel can just snap their fingers and now no. all of Gaza has no electricity, right? That doesn't sound like that's a
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> okay, I don't think we're going to solve that problem right now, so why don't we end there? So, my guest this week's folks, Jacob Winograd, and Jacob, thank you for your time. Can you point people you did allude to some of your? outlets in the beginning, but just for people who want to follow you, where can they go?
1: Yeah, of course. And, and thank you again, Bob, for having me on. It's been real fun. If you want to follow me on Twitter, like Bob said, I'm very active on there. It's at uh, Biblical Anarchy. If you want to find out more about the podcast, you could first go to biblicalanarchypodcast.com or libertarianchristians.com and look for Biblical Anarchy there. And then the podcast is The Biblical Anarchy Podcast, and it's on pretty much everything, Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts, I'm probably there. And yeah, I got episodes that do deeper dives on the topics that we talked about today, and interviews there and stuff as well. So if that's something of interest to you, go ahead and check that out. I'll also plug that recently LCI was at Freedom Fest back in July, and we did a whole like two, including at Freedom Fest, we focused for two to three months on Christian nationalism. So if that's something you're interested in, go ahead and check that out. And also I'll plug the rest of my Christians for Liberty podcast hosts. Check out the Libertarian Christian podcast. Check out the Reformed Libertarians podcast, which is done by Greg and Kerry Baldwin. And then we have Norman Horn and his podcast, the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. And we just launched a new podcast that I can't remember the name of, unfortunately, but it's a really cool one where uh, Norman sits down and interviews different entrepreneurs And Mm -hmm. basically talks to them about their experiences where their faith came into a major, brought them to a major point of contention in some kind of something in the corporate world or business world and how they handle that and stuff. And so it's a lot of cool stories like that, which I think people in your audience who are free market people would uh, would be definitely interested in. So that's all I got. Uh, Like I said, thanks again for having me on. It's It's been a lot of fun.
0: Okay, sure. And well, folks, if you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 296, I'll ask Jacob to send me some examples of good episodes that are on those those things too, if you want to see a a link there. All right, so thanks again, Jacob, for your time and thank you everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next time.
1: You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.